And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. There's nothing like taxes to tempt us to fudge the truth. Check out this cartoon. It says, uh, sorry, Mr. Lockhorn, you can't claim depreciation on your wife. Now, you may not be able to see it from where you're sitting, but she's looking at him, but her eyes are cut back at her husband like, man, are you going to get it when we get home? So guys, don't get any ideas. You can't claim depreciation on your wife. Well, when you throw in religion on top of taxes and government, you've really got a built-in formula for hypocrisy. Now, those three elements, taxes, government, religion, they all play a part in this exchange between the, the Jewish religious authorities and Jesus over this subject of, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, sometimes a commonly held or a common enemy will bring together some strange bedfellows, and that's what we have going on here. Now, Luke doesn't tell us this, but both Matthew and Mark do. Uh, the Herodians and the Pharisees joined forces in this attempt to bring Jesus down. Now, the Herodians, they backed Herod. That's why they're called Herodians. Uh, they backed his rule over Israel. The Pharisees hated Herod and anybody who supported him. So what's interesting here is that in order to get rid of Jesus, these enemies joined forces. They joined together uh, and they kind of acted like spies. They were trying to trap Jesus with a question designed to really impale him on the horns of a dilemma. You know, a dilemma is when you got two choices. Which do you choose? Well, after some flattery, they ask Jesus the question, is it lawful for us as Hebrew, as Jews, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And that's the basic question. If Jesus answered yes, then the Pharisees would accuse him of being soft towards Rome and certainly not being the Messiah who could deliver the nation from Rome's, you know, overpowering sovereignty. If he answered, no, we shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, the Herodians would report him to Pilate as being opposed to Caesar's rule. Well, that's, they'd be guilty of sedition. So they really thought they had Jesus on the hook here. But Jesus' answer, it stunned them. In one succinct sentence, he showed that God and Caesar both have legitimate realms of authority with corresponding responsibilities. But if there's a conflict between the realms, God is supreme over Caesar. All right? Now, by asking his critics to produce this Roman coin, it's a denarius, Jesus underscored the fact that they were enjoying the benefits of Caesar's government. They used his coinage. They enjoyed many civil improvements and, and benefits that he provided. So they were obligated to give him his due. And yet by his final statement, render to God the things that are God's, Jesus affirmed that it would be wrong to go along with Caesar's blasphemous claim to deity, which was stamped on each coin. One side said, Tiberius Caesar, that's him, son of the divine Augustus. There's the divinity. He claims his daddy was divine. The other side read Pontifex Maximus, or chief priest. Now, Jesus meant that above Caesar is God. And we must no, never go so far in rendering to Caesar 
that we violate our obligation to God. After all, He is the supreme sovereign who rules over everything. Luke wants us to learn that we must avoid religious hypocrisy. We've got to submit to proper government authority and we have to submit to God above all else. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, grateful again just for a chance to dive into your word. It's an opportunity for the spirit to speak truth into our hearts, to show us places where maybe we are somewhat hypocritical, uh, to show us that yes, government does have a valid purpose, but beyond that, obedience to you and submission to you is above all else. So God, do in our heart what we cannot and reveal Jesus to us. It's in his precious name we pray, amen. Now, Luke weaves together three themes here, the danger of religious hypocrisy, the duty of submission to government, but then the higher duty of obedience to God. So first, let's look at religious hypocrisy. Religious hypocrisy is a dangerous and foolish sin that we all have to guard against. Luke states that these religious leaders sent spies who pretended to be righteous or sincere, but their secret motive was to catch Jesus in some statement so that they could deliver him up to the rule and the authority of the governor. Now that way they would look good to the people and they would let the governor dispose of this troublesome teacher. Now their flattery in verse 21 is really ironic because even though they didn't believe what they were saying, it was totally true. Jesus did speak and teach correctly. He was not partial to any, and he did teach the way of God in truth. But if these hypocrites had believed what they were saying at that point, they would have submitted themselves to Jesus, and of course, they did not. First thing I want to say about religious hypocrisy, it's a dangerous sin because we're all prone to fall into it. And it's real easy to scoff at the inconsistency of these religious leaders. But you know what we need to do? We need to look at our own hearts and, and recognize and admit that, yeah, we're all prone toward hypocrisy. It lurks in all of our hearts because we're all disposed to want to look good to others. Uh, and, and we kind of forget uh, that God is looking to We're like the little boy. He was bragging to his brother that he had uh, killed a mouse that he caught. He told him how he clobbered him with a broom first, then picked him up by the tail and just uh, smashed it against a rock. Well, just then, the boy looked up and saw that the preacher was visiting, and he heard every word the little boy said. So without missing a beat, the little boy added, and then the good Lord called him home. We all want to look good. Fellow pastor relates that he and his wife went to look at a house that was for sale. The owner was a, a rough, old-looking man. He, he stood out on the por front porch talking with them, and eventually he asked the pastor what he did for a living, and as soon as he said that he was a pastor of the church, the old man grabbed the cigarette out of his mouth that he just lit, threw it on the porch, and stamped it out. And then uh, he, he, he exclaimed, just look at me smoking in front of a preacher. The pastor just looked at him and said, you know what? You smoke, you always smoke in front of God. Well, you're not going to hide from him. But guess what? Preachers are prone to hypocrisy also. It's easy to want to look more righteous in front of people than you really are. If you're not careful, you can give the impression that you have it all together spiritually when in fact you don't. 
Sometimes someone will make a comment about my personal level of piety that really goes beyond the truth. Uh, you must spend hours and hours in prayer each week. Well, no. Truth is, I kind of struggle with prayer like you do. But if I let that comment go uncorrected and I think, yeah, what's it going to hurt? Guess what? I've just stepped into hypocrisy. We have to be careful. Now, I'm not suggesting that we share all of our inner struggles, you know, our most intimate feelings or whatever with every person we meet. That, that's neither necessary or wise. But to avoid hypocrisy, we must not convey false impressions to make ourselves look better to others than we really are. Well, the second thing about religious, this is B, religious hypocrisy, it's a foolish sin because Jesus sees right through it. Jesus saw right through their trickery. Now, Luke uses the word craftiness. Jesus saw their craftiness. It's the same word that uh, uh, Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 11 about Satan's craftiness in deceiving Eve. Jesus always sees through the hypocrisy. Hebrews 4.13 is a very sobering verse. Here's what it says. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. There's no hiding it from God. Paul said that he lived not as pleasing others or pleasing men, uh, but God who examines our hearts. So let's learn from the pretense of these religious men that sometimes we can fool others, but we can never fool God. So be on guard against that sin of religious hypocrisy. Well, number two, we must submit to proper government authority. This is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. By his statement, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, Jesus says that God has ordained civil government and given it a proper sphere of authority. So first thing I want you to see is God ordained civil government for the good of society. Paul explains this in Romans 13. In verse 1 he says, let every person, he commands, let every person be in submission or subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. Now he goes on in verse 4 to state that the government is a minister of good to you, or excuse me, a minister of God to you for good. Now, Here's the ironic thing. Do you know who was emperor at the time Paul wrote this? The godless Nero. And yet Paul says, hey, he's, he's a minister of God to you for good. So we've got to conclude that we're not free to disobey or rebel against wicked rulers unless they command us to violate God's law. Now, there are two ways that government ought to provide for our good. Number one, government should promote justice for all. The government bears the, soul, uh, bears the sword to bring wrath upon the one who practices evil. And that's verse 4, Romans 13. By, hold, by, by, by upholding just laws and by punishing wrongdoers, the government should protect the innocent from those who would selfishly take advantage of them especially those who are, are weak and defenseless. When governments become corrupt, 
and fail to enforce laws with sufficient punishments to deter deter crime, law-abiding citizens suffer, and the government comes under God's judgment. Number two, government should promote peace and order in society and between societies. Proper government authority should enable its citizens to lead a tranquil and quiet life. The government should protect its citizens from bandits, from con men. Its laws should uphold honest business practices and and property rights. It should ensure religious liberty uh, within the bounds of human safety and dignity. Between nations, governments should maintain adequate national defense and treaties so that totalitarian regimes don't overpower weaker nations. Now, it follows that since B, since God ordained government, Christian citizens have a number of obligations toward it. Now, this is talking about us on a, on a day-to-day basis here. I've got seven. I'm sure there's more, but and I'm just going to touch up them because we just don't have enough time. Number one, Christians should submit to the government and cooperate it with it whenever possible. Romans 1 is pretty clear, isn't it? Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. To a persecuted church, here's what Peter wrote. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Now, when the government oversteps its jurisdiction and commands or tries to force its citizens to disobey God, that's when we must obey God and disobey the government. Now, some Christians, such as John Knox in Scotland, some of our own American forefathers, they led armed rebellion against tyrannical governments. We're going to celebrate Independence Day uh, next Sunday, right? Well, I kind of find that hard to support biblically. Neither Jesus nor the apostles advocated overthrowing the corrupt governments of their day. Well, number two, Christians should honor government leaders when possible. 1 Peter 2, 17 says, honor the king. Now, the reason I says when possible is that there are times when a government leader, he deserves censure, not honor. Jesus called Herod a fox, and that was not a nice thing. John the Baptist denounced him publicly for his immorality. But usually, we should grant honor to those in authority, even if we disagree strongly with their views or their behavior. Number three, Christians should pay their required taxes. Amen. Jesus' words here refer specifically to to paying a poll tax that Caesar imposed on his subjects. In Romans 13, 7, Paul states that we must pay tax to whom tax is due and custom to whom custom is due. Now, it's not good stewardship to overpay uh, your taxes, to pay more than you owe. So it's right to take legitimate deductions such as charitable contributions. But it's wrong to knowingly cheat on our taxes just because everybody else does it. And we shouldn't withhold a portion of what we owe to the government because we disagree with how they're going to spend it. That's not our prerogative. 
Number four, Christians should pray for government leaders. Paul urged Timothy to direct the churches to pray for kings and all who are in authority. Uh, now, the aim of such prayers, as I said a minute ago, is that we may, that may lead a, a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And we should also pray for the conversion and for the moral courage of our leaders. Well, number five, Christians should evangelize and disciple government leaders when the opportunity arises. Whenever Paul stood before government authorities, he used the opportunity to preach the gospel. He bore witness to Felix, to Festus, to Agrippa, and their wives. He led many in Caesar's household to faith in Christ. Over in 2 Timothy, which is the last book, we believe it's the last book that Paul writes, chapter 4, Paul wrote, uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he gives, he's just telling Timothy what it's been like for him. He says, um, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. So Paul is, he's arrested and he's got to defend, but nobody is with him. May it not be charged against them, against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed to all and all the Gentiles might hear it. Now, nobody stood with him when he was on trial is what he's saying, but don't hold it against him. God gave me the in, an opportunity to share the gospel in the midst of that situation. That's, that's what we need to do as well. We need to look for opportunities to share the good news of Christ. Christians who hold public office and discharge their duties with integrity, they can have a widespread influence for Christ. Well, number six, Christians should respectfully confront government leaders who are unrighteous. Daniel gives us a couple examples of this. He told Nebuchadnezzar to turn from his sins and to do rightly. And he strongly confronted uh, Belshazzar for his spiritual, moral in, uh, in spiritual and moral negligence. Many Old Testament prophets confronted sinful kings for their wrongdoings. John the Baptist exposed Herod's sin of taking his brother's wife. Paul spoke with Felix and his wife about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Now, except for those Old Testament kings, none of the rulers that I just cited were believers or part of the, the covenant community. Yet, in each case, God's spokesman reminded these leaders that they would one day give an account to God for their evil deeds unless they repented. Now, those who want to silence the church from speaking out on moral issues, they've carried the argument for the separation of, of church and state to really ridiculous extremes. Now, while I agree that the government should not establish any religion, that doesn't mean that, that, that Christian citizens should not speak out on moral issues that threaten our well-being of our society. We are called to be salt and light and to bear witness in this evil world. And sometimes that witness involves confronting sin even before we share the good news of salvation in Jesus. Well, number seven, Christians should be involved in government in accordance with their gifts and calling. Now, each believer has different gifts and callings from God. 
Each of us must seek his wisdom and directions, directions as to how and where he wants us to serve him. Now, we have biblical examples, great examples of men like Joseph, Nehemiah, and Daniel who served, I mean, we're talking number two in the kingdom in pagan governments, right? This wasn't, this wasn't among the Jews. This was among the Babylonians and, and among the Egyptians that God raised his people to be in pagan governments. Now, in our democratic form of government, it seems to me that our minimum responsibility as Christian citizens is that we vote for candidates and issues that will best further Christian values in our land. Now, some may be called to greater involvement. Maybe you need to be a, a, a county commissioner, a congressman. Maybe one of you kids out here one day needs to be president and represent God. Well, still, uh, to do nothing when God has given us the right to vote, that's just irresponsible. Now, I want to deal with one more question here under, under uh, government. How far should we push Christian morality in a secular society? Again, this is, this is touching us right where we live. Number one, evangelism. Not political power is God's primary means of dealing with society's problems. If we forget this, we easily fall into what's called just the social gospel. In other words, yeah, you're helping people, but you never share Jesus with them. The major problems in this evil world, they stem from sin within the human heart. The only lasting remedy for sin is the gospel that changes people from rebellion against God into submission to God. Now, it's fine to elect Christians to public office. It's fine to pass legislation that upholds Christian moral values. But we need to keep in mind the limits of those objectives. Such things are not going to turn our nation around from its evil course, the course of evil that it's on. Only the gospel can do that. So we need to focus on proclaiming the gospel from our pulpits and from our lives individually. But for Christians to withdraw completely from the political process, that really seems to deny that, that God uses Christians and the institution of secular government to restrain evil. So I urge involvement in, involvement in government according to your gifting and your calling as long as you keep the priority of the gospel at the heart of matters. And you remember the limited value of political action. Well, number two, in the political arena, Christians should major on the majors, but minor on the minors and the gray areas. Let's just talk about abortion for a couple seconds. It's clearly a major issue. It involves killing a human life for convenience sake. And that's clearly against God's word. What about prayer in the public schools? This is more of a gray area, believe it or not, especially when we cannot stipulate Christian prayers. In 1963, when prayer was, you know, done away with in schools, what were the prayers that were being offered before that? They were Christian prayers. <laughs> what if we opened up the school today for prayers? Now you're going to get prayers from Buddhists, from Hindus, from Muslims, 
from everything else you can think of plus Christianity. So again, that's kind of a gray area. What about laws that mandate teaching in our public schools that homosexuality is a valid and good lifestyle? That is a far more serious threat. Christians are right to mount opposition to such laws and, and to pull their children out of schools if those type laws are passed. What I'm saying here, we really need God's wisdom in picking our battles. Well, number three, Christians should argue issues in the, public, in the public arena on the basis of social merit, apart, don't get me wrong here, apart from Scripture, apart from the Bible. Our secular society doesn't accept the Bible as God's standard of morality. And if we argue the Bible says so, guess what, folks? We are not going to be heard but if we argue on the broader basis of wide social merit and commonly held values, then we can pass laws that protect the family and promote overall well-being. You can argue against convenience abortion simply by on the basis of protecting human life and having compassion for babies. You can argue against pornography simply because it degrades women. You can urge stiffer penalties for drunk drivers out of concern for public safety. Now, as Christians, we have biblical reasons for each of these issues. But if we haul out the Bible to promote our view, we're going to be ignored. Number four, in the political arena, a reasonable compromise that has a good chance of passing is better than an uncompromised position that will most likely lose. Now, I'm not saying that we should compromise our moral positions as Christians. What I'm saying is that in a fallen world, we may have to settle for less than Christian ideals. For example, in the area of abortion, while it's wrong to kill any child in the womb unless the mother's life is at stake, if we hold out for a measure that bans all abortions, Guess what? We'll never stop abortions. But if there's a chance of passing a law that bans abortion except in cases of rape, incest, severe deformity, or a threat to the mother's life, we should go for it, even though we don't agree with most of those exceptions. Do you understand if that passed, we would stop 95% of the abortions out there? Would you rather have 95 or none? Here's the problem. By holding out all for, for all or nothing, we almost always come away with nothing. Well, the confrontation between Jesus and these Jewish, uh, these, uh, Jewish leaders teaches us that we must avoid religious hypocrisy and we must submit to proper governmental authority. But there is another theme. Number three, we must submit to God above all. Render to God the things that are God's. Jesus' statement implies that just as the Roman coin had Caesar's image stamped on it and thus rightly fell under his jurisdiction, so every person has God's image stamped on them and thus rightly belongs to God. Just as Caesar has sole authority to issue coins stamped in his image, so God is the only one who creates humans in his image. 
We owe God our very existence. He rightfully owns us, our possessions, our money, our time. If we're not yielding ourselves completely to His sovereign lordship, then we are disobeying the supreme authority of the universe. Now, by challenging Jesus, these Pharisees and Herodians, they, uh, they were guilty of not rendering to God the things that are God's. They came to Jesus not to obey Him, but to trip Him up, to trap Him. They acted as, as if they were sincerely interested in His, in his uh, opinion about a moral issue, but they had no intention of obeying what He said. Now, the only way that you can come to Christ is to come honestly, confessing your sins, being willing to obey Him. If you come to contend with Him in, in order to get your own way, huh, beware. He knows the secret motives of every heart. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So the kind of overarching principle is that we must submit all of our lives to the absolute sovereignty of God, the supreme ruler of the universe. We find out in Daniel chapter 4, and Nebuchadnezzar is the one that tells us of all people, he sets up rulers and he takes them down according to his will. So when God's authority confronts our authority to rule our lives, we must submit to him or faces judgment. We've all got to do business with God who examines our hearts. Don't risk playing games with Him. It always causes great damage to the cause of Christ when a man who is crusaded against pornography all of a sudden gets caught with a prostitute. We need to judge our hypocrisy and live with integrity before God. Surrender the things to Caesar that are Caesar, but above, above all, render to God the things that are God's. Let's pray. Father, what a challenge uh, from your word this morning. I uh, pray that you would uh, just give us discernment and, and wisdom to not only hear the words, Father, but to have them penetrate our heart, speak through your Holy Spirit. Uh, without his assistance, uh, this is all for naught. So God, speak to us this morning, show us what we need to know, what we need to learn, and how we can be better conformed into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his precious name I pray, amen. Uh, you know, brokenness is all over. Everywhere we look in the world, we see brokenness. Boy, you, you go to any social media post, you go to any TV, uh, news program, radio, doesn't matter. Uh, the world is broken and we know it. Here's what everybody else also knows. They're broken. And their brokenness leads, can lead, to this hypocrisy that I'm talking about. Maybe you're out there. You've been coming to church for 25 years. But you're a hypocrite. You do not know God. You come. You, you give money to the church. You even volunteer in some ministry or whatever. You try to be a good person. All those things are just mounting and more and more hypocrisy. The truth is you don't know God through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the brokenness that I'm talking about. It's deep within. You know that you are broken. The world wasn't designed this way. God made the world perfect. His design was inscrutable. At the end of it all, He says, yep, it is very good. But then sin entered through Adam and Eve and through their disobedience. 
Well, that sin has led to the brokenness that we experience today. And so maybe you're, maybe you're not the religious type and you're just here by chance today. But God is speaking to you and he's shown you that, yes, in fact, you are broken. You've tried everything in the world. It's what I started the sermon with. Satan's number one thing that I think that he has to really get, particularly Americans and the, just the affluent of the world, is that it offers you a million things out there to become your new little idol. And it's so easy to chase those little idols rather than chasing God. Maybe you recognize that about yourself today. You've been trying all these different things, wherever it's a better job, better house, better car, you know, more money, you just name it. There's just too many things out there that we can chase. But you've chased them long enough and you go, yep, I am still broken. There's one thing you need and that's Jesus Christ. I encourage you to come this morning to Him. Ask God to forgive you of your sins and trust Christ with your eternal life. He'll save you this morning. If you're a believer, understand that, yes, we do have an obligation to this government. Now, think about it. You may not like our government. That's okay. You're entitled to that. You're in America. You can like and dislike whatever you don't like. But you know what? We got a better government than a whole bunch of other places on this earth. There are people, I mean, places right now that if I were to stand up and preach this in the streets, I would be arrested and put in prison, probably till I died. Some would just shoot me dead. What a way to go. That's not going to happen here. It's because we have these freedoms. All right? Well, don't let those freedoms lull you to sleep. There's still many people out there that need to know about Jesus. And that's our job as the body of Christ. Right? We've been broken, but we, we were broken, but we've been healed by Jesus Christ. Praise God. We need to go back out there and let others know that they can be healed through Jesus as well. I hope that you, you've considered the hypocrisy of your own heart. Yeah, I'm not being very truthful about this. Whatever it is, deal with that. Let God speak to your heart and you deal with that. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.